Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Lots of activity. We touched on this story slightly yesterday, but I want to get more detail to you today about what's happening in Queen's Park and, frankly, the reaction right across the province. Uh, vandalism, death threats, uh, just a couple of the things that the government says that they are facing in Queen's Park as a result of new labor legislation that they've introduced. This is all about them basically tearing apart Bill 148, which obviously was the minimum wage thing, but there are a number of other initiatives in that bill as well. Last night, Labor Minister Laurie Smith's constituency office in Kawartha Lakes was left in shambles. Uh, Travis Damronch uh, from, uh, from Global News, of course, who covers Queen's Park, filed this report about the story. Vandals smashed multiple windows, the front doors, threw furniture, and scrawled graffiti on the outside wall, reading, Attack workers, we fight back, $15. House leader Todd Smith accuses the labor movement of fanning the flames. Multiple groups held a news conference yesterday condemning the new legislation that would scrap a raise of the minimum wage to $15. The Ontario Federation of Labor's Chris Buckley says it's sad the government would accuse groups like his of being linked to the vandalism, when he says all they're doing is fighting for worker rights. Travis Stanrage, Global News, Toronto. So on it goes, and, and there is no way that you can actually justify the kind of damage and vandalism that's going on, but we are seeing uh, a, a visceral reaction to a lot of the things that the Ford government is doing. I mean, it's one thing to say, okay, we're going to cancel cap and trade, uh, but when all of a sudden uh, you know, wages are rolled back, uh, benefits that had been I guess, in some people's minds, uh, finally given to them after years and years of fighting uh, are being rolled back with the stroke of a pen. Uh, you can understand why these demonstrations are going on. Not the, the fact that it should actually lead to vandalism, but I mean, it is becoming a problem here. So what is going on and what kind of reaction should the government actually be looking at here to try to deal with this sort of thing? I want to bring Richard Brennan into the conversation. Of course, uh, Richard covered uh, Queens Park and Parliament Hill for many, many years, of course, uh, writing for the Toronto Star, uh, joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Richard, thanks so much for the time. Good to have you with us today. Good morning, Bill. Listen, in all the years you've been covering this, we've seen people that have pushed back against government policies and rollbacks, etc. But this this takes me back. And I mean, as, soon, as I read these stories and hear about what's going on, uh, this reminds me of, of the days of action protests, uh, the sorts of things that went on during the Mike Harris, or early years anyway, in the Mike Harris regime. Well, it certainly does. Uh, we haven't seen the thousands of people and protesters on the lawn yet, but that's to come. I mean, there's no question that that's going to happen. Um as with many things, optics are really what matter. And yesterday, I think, just the fact, or was it yesterday, uh, where they stood up in the House and the Tories congratulated themselves and clapped at, at uh, the fact that they just gutted the uh, labor reforms. Yeah, gave themselves a standing ovation. Yeah, and, and including the, the $14. And, and that really sticks in people's craw, because here we are, we, you know, there's uh, the government side, and everybody in the House, and the legislature's making $100,000 or more. And here they are, clapping the fact that they've just told people, no, we're not giving you $15 an hour. And not only that, we're getting, having, getting rid of the two days, you know, paid leave, and cutting back here the different 10 to, I believe, 8, the number of days that you can take off. And so, you know, I don't think anybody should be surprised that labor, and not when you say labor, it's not a, it's not a, a monolith. We're talking individual people saying, well, hold on a second. 
you guys are doing all right, but for me to make $15 an hour, that's terrible. No wonder people, like, who's fanning the flames here? Is it labor or the government? Well, that's the question I guess we have to ask ourselves. And, and it, the reason I, I draw the analogy between this and the common sense revolution is, once again, they seem to be taking people at the lowest end of the economic spectrum and, and victimizing them and saying, you're the reason that we're in debt. You know, we're, you're the one that are going to pay for this. And it's, it's not unlike what Mike Harris did when he simply said, you know what, people that are taking social assistance are all bums. Uh, 35% of them, which was just total fabrication. But people bought into that. The the, the advocates, the, the the people that supported Harris thought, yeah, you're, you're, you're right. And they seem to be doing the same thing with what Ford's doing. Just to go over a little bit of history here, the fact is a lot of people rem- couldn't, didn't remember, and I don't know why, that we just went through one of the worst recessions in 50 years at that point when Mike Harris took over. Yeah. And people, tons of people, lost their job, including the two, my two neighbors when I lived in Oakville. Both lost their jobs. And and people had to resort to welfare that never ever thought in their entire lives they would have to go on welfare. You know, it's 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 easy it's easy to kick people when they're down, but the point is I I thought the idea of a government was to help people, not not slam them to the mat. Well, I mean, they're they're buying into this, obviously, and we know that there was a great deal of debate that went on about one forty eight before the wind government passed it. And uh, groups like, well, the Ontario Chamber of Commerce and others uh, have been advocating scrapping this bill in the meantime. And, 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 and obviously the government has listened to that and capitulated and said, yeah, we're going to do this right now. And, and there were weaknesses. I mean, you know, you know, we talked about this when the bill was passed, uh, that there are weaknesses in 148. There's some things in there they probably shouldn't have done, some things that they could have done a, a little more, uh, I guess, in, in a fashion that was going to be more amenable to businesses. But at the same time, you don't just tear it up and say, okay, we're going to throw the whole thing out right now and basically tell people that are making minimum wage, you're on your own. It's one thing, you know, to say, okay, we're going to revisit this law. We're going to... This- this legislation and see you know what we can do maybe to improve it but it's a whole other thing to basically gut it and that's essentially what's happened here and and on the very heels of getting rid of uh, 148 the star has today that the ministry of labor has instructed staff not to initiate any new proactive inspections aimed at preventing wage theft and other employment standards violations this is on the very heels I've gotten that legislation. Now they're saying, well, <clears throat> we, we proactively won't, uh, you know, uh, go after companies that, uh, you know, for unpaid wages and overtime. Why, why pick on them? Well, because, because it plays to their base. I, I wish I could, I know I'm sounding like a broken record here, but that's what it is. I can remember the government over the other day, the Mike Harris government, just lapping it up when thousands of people were out on the lawn protesting against their government. They thought it was the greatest thing in the world. You and I might, you know, stand, stand in our office at Greens Park at the same point. You know, maybe we did something wrong. They didn't. They literally applauded the fact that they had protesters at the door. And I was there, so I can tell you that's exactly true. But the, you, you look at some of the things they're doing, and, and you have to wonder about the, the, the rationale and, and what's the motivation behind this. I mean, uh, it, there's always going to be changes when a new government comes in, and they're going to say, look, at the, you know, the other guys did this, and we think it was wrong, so we want to modify this or do something else. 
But it almost seems as if the the the, the credo here seems to be, if wind did it, we want to rip it apart. <clears throat> and, and and an example of that obviously is 148. But even the announcement the other day, and you and I were going back and forth on on Twitter about this. Uh, they they canceled the funding for university campus expansions for three different communities in this area. Uh, this is education. I mean, this is not reckless spending. I mean, you know, I thought we were investing in education, investing in the future, and they just arbitrarily said, no, we're not doing that anymore. Well, there's two sides to that coin. <clears throat> part, part of the problem is, and, and, and I, can, I have some sympathy for, for the Ford government in a way, the fact is a government on its way out, knowing they're toast, will promise the moon. And that leaving the, the new government to have to deal with all these promises. Now, were, were these universities necessary? So a lot of people say it wasn't. They weren't. But there's more to this story. And as I think we, 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 we chatted on. Yeah. Email yesterday. The fact is that I think Markham and Milton were collateral damage. The whole the whole thing was was handled in that way, I believe. And I and this is you know this sounds like a bit of a conspiracy, but they can't Fordites can't stand Brown, the new the new uh, mayor in Brampton. Just I mean they just hate the guy. And so I, I think this was I think this was directed entirely at getting back at him. Sounds it sounds it sounds a bit out there, but I tell you, you well, I mean, yeah, but don't yeah, know but, how much they dislike this guy, uh, and if, uh, for whatever reason. But I mean, obviously, the, first of all, you know, when Brown tried to make a comeback, running up in the, in the, his uh, constituency area up around Barrie. Uh, Ford eliminated the job. He said there there will be no regional chairman up there anymore. So bingo. So he decides to run in Brampton. And the timing of this is suspect, if nothing else, Richard. The day Uh after Brown gets elected, he says, by the way, you're not getting a university campus up there. It is. uh, But, you know, they saved $300 million. You know, in in the overall consideration of things, it's, it's a bit of a drop in the bucket. But they are going to have to find, you know, efficiencies if you for lack of a better word they're going to have to cut and, and get some you know get back to towards balance so who knows maybe this is all done just for the very uh, you know for the only reason of tr- trying to save some dough who knows i i think otherwise but that doesn't mean it's you know it's fact but it's it's creating a rift and 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 again you know as we talked about on the program yesterday uh, this is the same, you know, Doug Ford that as he was you know, trying to run for office, first of all, to be the leader, and second, of course, during the campaign to, to become premier, uh, that every time he stepped in front of the podium, that little sign in front of the podium said, for the people. And, and oh, okay, if you're for the people, why are you doing this? These, these, these are people that really need the government's assistance, and they're basically thumbing their nose at them. He didn't say which people. Yeah, exactly. He, let's face it, right now, you know, with with the support they have, particularly in in outside of Toronto, they can do no wrong. And so what if they dump on labor? Their supporters are saying, "Yeah, it's about time those labors, you know, got put, you know, the unions got put in their place." It's 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 a very much a repeat of the Harris years. It, it's almost a mirror image in some ways. 
And it seems to be working. Well, it is so. It is now, it, and, and it could be. You know, it could be for another term after this. But people get weary of it, of the fight. They get weary of the constant battle between, you know, be it the teachers and the government or the labor and the government. It it just gets wearisome, and and it wears out. That's what it does. And 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 you know, it'll probably happen again. You know, whether it wears out sooner than later. That remains to be seen. And, and listen, when we're talking about the sort of thing, <clears throat> excuse me, that are going on, I, I mean, nobody's condoning violence and, and vandalism. I mean, that's that's taking it to the nth degree, not unlike what's going on in the states right now. But and we don't want it to get to that level. But by the same token, I mean, you know, people that feel as if they're getting ripped off by the government are, are going to make some noise about it, and that seems to be what's happening here. Uh, and these are not people that are just, you know, these are not rabble-rousers. I mean, if you're making minimum wage and find out all of a sudden that you're not going to get benefits, and by the way, if you take a day off because you're sick, uh, you're not going to get paid for it, of course you're going to be upset. And and the fact that that legislation was presented in the first place and, and, and people thought, well, finally, we've got some respect and we're going to get a little more security in the workplace, to have that yanked out from under you, that's, that's pretty difficult for anybody to handle. To be fair, though, uh, they everybody knew that they weren't going to go for the fifteen dollars. Yeah, they said that during the campaign. Yeah, so I mean that was clear. But you have to remember, it was only two paid days. Two. We weren't talking about two weeks. It was only two paid days, and they got rid of it. Now, do you, is that going to save a lot of money for? Uh, you know, for for businesses, I really don't think so because you know a lot of people don't take days off at all. <laughs> well, you know that, and we you know, we've all know people like that. Oh, you know, hey, uh, Rick, oh, you got the flu? Oh, I, you, you shouldn't go to work today. Well, I can't if I don't go to work, I don't get paid, yeah. so I've got to go to work. Well, you know, in two thousand eighteen, who would have thought we'd be at this point? I know it's 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 troubling to be sure that's what's going on, and you got to wonder just how far they're going to go with this. I mean, and if if the the whole political agenda here is okay, we want to pick a a, a group. In this case, it's going to be low income people, and make them the enemy. Uh, who's next? I mean, you know, in the Harris regime and common sense revolution, they picked on doctors, nurses, teachers, uh, low income, social service recipients, and, and on and on it goes. Are we, is is this the repeat of that whole agenda again? Well. That's the trouble with electing somebody, a kind of a pig in a poke, not really knowing what you're electing, and you know what he what he stood for. Because we really didn't know, except for you know a, a few fringe issues. People elected him because they hated the liberals, and so now they've they've given him free reign, and said <clears throat> basically, he, well he said it many many times that he'll do exactly what he likes. Mm-hmm. And it is a repeat. I mean, this is, to go back to that days when the Common Sense Revolution and Mike Harris came in, they hated Bob Ray and the NDP. I mean, obviously, the people on the right hated the NDP just from a philosophical standpoint, but Bob lost a lot of the people that were labor unionized and, and organizing it on the left uh, because of his, his the Ray days and, and you know all that sort of stuff. So that alienated everybody, and they just said anybody but the NDP. And, of course, you know the liberals, of course, were in disarray at that time. Very similar to what happened this time. Well, we just have to look at the history books and the the huge strike and strike back in uh, Windsor 
the forge right back many, many years ago in the late 40s, when basically uh, workers stood up and said, enough's enough. And it happened in Winnipeg long before that, too. And, you know, is, it, is, it, is that coming? All, all, in a way, this really bolsters the union movement. I know it sounds silly, but it really does, because it gives them a spine. And said, you know, and they say we're not going to take it anymore. So, it, what they're what the government's doing, and in effect, is breathing new life. I think into the labor movement. Well, we'll have to see how they respond to this in the next little while. Richard, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for this today. Okay, thanks, Bill. Richard Brennan, of course, uh, who covered Queens Park for many, many years for the Toronto Star. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Over the last couple of years, we've been uh, telling you about uh, the dilemma that we've been facing here in this community with code zeros, uh, with our, our emergency services, of course, and uh, paramedics. Well, the latest numbers now from the city of Hamilton show that the uh, number of code zero incidents is actually decreasing significantly. Is the problem going away? Have we found the solution for it at long last? Let's uh, bring Mario Pastorero in the conversation, president, of course, of OPSU Local 256 uh, with the uh, first responders and paramedics. Mario, thanks for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Good to be on, Bill. Thank you. Well, give me your read on what you see from these numbers that uh, that Mr. Sanderson uh, presented uh, just a couple of days ago. Uh, We get this data either through the media or through information reports to the city of Hamilton that are presented to the city of Hamilton. So what I can tell you is that is just statistically accurate. And uh, I'll advise your listeners that um, Code Zero events have traditionally been manually tracked and underreported. But if it shows an improvement, I think that's good news. I think we have to wait for a longer period of time to assess whether there's been an improvement uh, to the degree that it's sustainable. Well, uh, yeah, that's what you're looking for here is consistency, right? I mean, according to the report, uh, the first part of this year, they, they were, again, significant numbers, and they have decreased in the last little while. Uh, what's what's the reason for the decrease? Because, I mean, you've talked to us about potential solutions. Uh, staffing is obviously a problem. I don't think they've addressed that to any uh, significant degree. But is, is there a, a procedural change that's happened that's maybe had a, an impact on these numbers? There's likely been at least a short-term renewed effort within the hospitals to move patients. Uh, we'll have to see with the upcoming flu season whether that is sustainable. Uh, what has not changed is our demographic and our increasing demands for medical service. As I reported before, uh, our older adults within the city of Hamilton outnumber that of comparable municipalities. Older adults account for approximately one-third of our calls. So uh, elderly are five times more likely to actually uh, call 911 than the non-elderly. That demographic has not changed, and all indication is it's going to continue to increase unless it's mitigated with at least the appropriate number of ambulances and the required um, uh, changes within the hospitals um, by having more beds within the community, uh, opening up those beds so patients can be moved from the hospital into those long-term care beds. This What's being reported just might be a short-term, a short-term solution. Well, you got to wonder. Yeah, your point's bang on here, Mario. I mean, it's the summer season, and maybe uh, you know that's going to change, as you say. Since once they get into flu season, uh, winter time slips and falls, and things of that nature so tend to increase in that time. Uh, and the numbers don't change, really, do they? I mean, you're still getting a lot of calls. Yeah, the calls for medical assistance will continue to increase. I mean, that's that's indisputable. Uh, the question will be: Will funding, both at the provincial level, continue to increase 
and will funding at the municipal level uh, hopefully increase to the degree that we have the requisite number of ambulances to deal with demands for medical service. I can tell you in March, um, with the previous Liberal government, the Ontario uh, spending watchdog stated that a growing and aging population is adding pressure to Ontario's health care system and spending isn't keeping up. A situation that could result in compromised quality of care if left unaddressed. And that was the provincial uh, fiscal watchdog. Uh, went on to say even the most basic services are stretched with ER wait times on the rise as hospitals become severely overcrowded. That was under the Liberal government. This current government, I think it's safe to say, is probably going to be even more fiscally responsible, uh, probably to the degree that we won't see any additional funding within the hospital sector. As a matter of fact, two or three weeks ago within the legislature, when Hamilton's issue was brought up, the provincial government and I quote, this is Hamilton's problem to solve. So we will not be seeing money from this government to deal with some of the provincial health-related issues. And if it's going to fall back on our municipal government to ensure that we have enough ambulances to deal with the increase in call demand. Well, and there, that's why we were drawing the analogy just earlier in the hour here when we were talking about uh, what the Ford government is doing. It sounds eerily similar to what the Mike Harris government did back in the 1990s. And and I know when we talked about downloading and, and the impact that that has on communities, it certainly did on the Hamilton community. Uh, one of the elements of that that doesn't get a whole lot of play, but I think it d- deserves to, was was the cost of land ambulances, which the, at that time the government said, okay, that's the municipality's responsibility, and put a huge burden, of course, on, on property taxpayers to try to t- cover some of those costs. Uh, so I'm, I'm my concern here, Mario, is not only will there not probably be more funding coming from the province, we're not even sure if they may start downloading some of those costs back under the municipality, and that's going to make it even worse. That's definitely a scary proposition, uh, as you recall. I mean, you, you lived through that, and I lived through that, and I, I hate to see it happen again. Yes, we lived through it together, and I remember talking to you in 1999 yeah. when Harrison downloaded the provision of ambulance service to the municipalities, and uh, the city of Hamilton made the right decision by taking it in-house, given some of the options, other options that were available. Uh, ambulance service within the city of Hamilton, as with other municipalities, is funded at a 50% ratio. Hopefully that continues, and I'm hoping we can meet that. But in the meantime, our increasing calls for emergency service by our elderly, by our patients, continues to grow. The only, the only leverage the city of Hamilton has is to provide the appropriate funding to make sure we have the sufficient number of ambulances to deal with increasing call demands. At this point, it's still a 50-50 funding split. It would be horrific if that changed. It would be horrific for the taxpayers of Hamilton. I'm hoping that doesn't happen because that will saddle us with with, uh, an unbearable additional uh, tax cost bill. Mario, is there still some uh, agreement uh, between yourself and management about about staffing levels here? Because uh, I know that you've been talking about this for quite some time, and 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 I know that uh, the the manager, of course, uh, that's in charge of this whole program, uh, has been, I think, sympathetic. He seems to be on the same page uh, when we're talking about some of these numbers. That's, we're talking about Michael Sanderson, of course, uh, from the city. But uh, it's going to cost money to do this sort of thing, and and obviously this is going to be one of the challenges for the new council, I would think. I think it will be, and our request for additional funding is not frivolous. Uh, it's backed up with data. Uh, presently within the city of Hamilton, we have less paramedics per 1,000 residents. We do more calls per 1,000 residents. So our costs are less than other comparable municipalities. Bottom line is our, our taxpayers get great value for money. And what I'm referring to is some of these measurements, some of these metrics that are identified 
for every ambulance service under the Ontario Municipal Benchmarking Initiative. So the data that I've given you is as a result of uh, that that entity, the OMB, the OMBI. Um, so what we're we're asking for is consistent with what the assessment of those metrics are. So they're not frivolous requests. Our population demands continue. Um, we have more complex medical cases. Uh, we have an aging population. Our call volume is scheduled to increase between three and four percent annually. You can't just blame this on the hospitals. You have to take you have to take account of the fact that your ambulance service has to have enough staff on on a daily basis to deal with the call demand. And I know code zeros have 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 been the marquee uh, data point, but there's other measurements that aren't being talked about. And I'm referring to perhaps less emergent calls. We refer to them as priority three calls. Right now, 27% of our call volume constitutes those types of calls, fractured hip, um, uh, head injury, uh, those types of calls, abdominal pain. Those patients have to wait. 10% of those patients are waiting up to an hour. That's not, that's not what our elderly um, should expect from their ambulance service. A contemporary ambulance service should be able to respond to all of the demands of its population and in spite of the code zeros, I, I hope the trend continues. I won't even call it a trend. I hope we see a continued reduction in code zeros. But that does not fundamentally change the fact that our call volume and the other metrics within it, within our ambulance service, we require more frontline ambulances. City Hall and, and, and the councillors, quite frankly, are playing a dangerous game here. And you've talked about these ratios in the past. Uh, you know, the, the ratio of paramedics to population is below the provincial average, and, and, and that's troubling. And not unlike, for instance, uh, police services. I mean, even our police ratio of, of, of officers to, to population is well below the provincial average. And, and I know the councillors are going to, you know, pat themselves on the back and say, well, we're saving money. But you're playing a dangerous game here uh, when you're doing that sort of thing, because in, in service situations or in emergency situations, we are, by definition, understaffed, aren't we? We definitely are and we have the data to support that. I'm a Hamilton taxpayer. Obviously, I don't want to see my property taxes increase, but I think this city council, this new council, will have the opportunity to grapple with some decisions and assess where their priorities are. And if it's not within emergency care, then where is it? We occupy a very thin slice of the emergency services pie, even in comparison to police and fire. Police, per per average taxpayer, the cost is about $800 per uh, residential taxpayer. Mm-hmm. For fire, it's about $400. For EMS, it's $100. So clearly there's a disparity amongst the three emergency services. Um, keep in mind, we also are fortunate at this point in time to have access to 50% funding from the province. I think now is the time to take advantage of it because down the road, I'm not sure what this four government's going to do, and it might completely remove or eliminate that levy that we presently enjoy. We need to staff up based on our call volume. Our demographics point to an increasing call volume. We can't let our, our elderly and our citizens down by having an inadequate number of transport ambulances to service their needs. And, and just to reiterate what you've told us before, but I, I just want our listeners to, to, to understand exactly what this comes down to. Uh, because f- to get one extra unit, in other words, one extra vehicle, and of course have it properly staffed, uh, I think the ballpark figure you gave us, Mary, was about a million dollars. Is that right? Correct. Uh, one has probably gone north of one million right now. But that's the, you know, that's the harsh reality. That's what it costs to put an ambulance on the road, fully staffed, equipped for, 20, for 24 hours a day, seven days a week. That's the reality. And as of today, anyway, 
uh, that's 50 cents on the dollar because the other 50 cents would be picked up by the province if, in fact, the this, this city council decided to go in that direction. And we should take advantage of that very fact because we're not sure what the future holds with this government. Yeah, because, I mean, let's face it, we already know about projections for population here that this city is growing uh, at a, an incredible rate. Uh, the population is getting older, the population is getting bigger, uh, but we're not doing anything about our emergency services. That's an undeniable fact, and we either address it head-on or we ignore it and face the consequences. And by facing the consequences, I think we're letting our citizenry down by not providing them with the service that they deserve. Now, let's let's talk a little bit about what's going on in the hospital, which, of course, is not something that's directly within our control. I mean, that's a hospital administration. But my understanding is, is obviously, the, the rules were that, that your staff... Uh, had to wait there until that uh, that individual that was brought in by uh, by ambulance was either triaged or uh, obviously you know put into the hospital or whatever. Some determination was made. Uh, I understand that this uh, the the they're a little more flexible about that now that you can leave a little bit sooner. I, I think well we have one hospital where we've piloted a program where it's turned fit to sit. So what that means is if our paramedics bring in a patient that they deem to be of a low priority, low medical urgency then we can physically bring that patient over to the sitting area. Uh, those patients would be waiting longer to be assessed, but it would allow the paramedics, in theory, to move back onto the road to respond to the next 911 call, which is likely waiting. So there's, there's, the initiative seems to show some promise at St. Joe's. We'll see if, it, uh, if it's taken up by the Jurvinsky and the Hamilton General. That's one element, and uh, you know, we as a service, I, I believe, have been very proactive in coming up with programs in order to reduce the demand of our service. We have community paramedics, we have a social navigator program. We're trying to preempt the number of 911 calls. But in spite of these programs, we have not been able to keep pace with this escalating call volume. And that's, you know, that's something that we have to be honest about and not try to just put band-aids and make promises about what the future looks like. The future is as follows. Hamilton is growing. That is a positive thing. We have elderly. That's a positive thing. They require assistance at a time in their life where they've paid through their taxes, through their, their contributions. And I think we should not do a disservice to them by not allowing them to have an optimal contemporary ambulance service. We need more ambulances, Bill. Bottom line, we need more ambulances. In spite of some of these short-term successes, we need more frontline staffing. Well, I'm going to pull in a report that you and I talked about about six or seven months ago, I think, uh, that talks, first of all, about those low ratio numbers. And, and that's, as you say, that's fact. I mean, the numbers back that up. But what happens as a result of that, first of all, you've got p- staff that, of course, are way late in, in ERs waiting until those p- the, the patients are triage, triage. rather. Secondly, you get burnout among your staff. And, and you've talked about this quite openly, and a number of your staff have talked about this quite openly in the last little while, that uh, you know, they're working long hours, sometimes without breaks. Uh, they get sick, they get tired, they have to take some days off, and as soon as that happens, you're, you're, that, that only makes the, the understaffed a- a- aspect of this even more problematic. Absolutely. And we've never tried to make this issue about the paramedics themselves, but you've, you've definitely uh, raised the issue, and, and it absolutely does have an impact on the mental health, on the career longevity, and on the everyday working of paramedics who are continually uh, pummeled uh, in a high-call volume uh, service at the city of Hamilton. I think it's well known within the province and within the paramedic profession that two years working in Hamilton equals four or five years working in any other municipality. We have a blistering pace. Our medics keep up. 
they are a component of the service, and they cannot be ignored. The mental well-being, the physical well-being of our paramedics ought to be paramount, and I think the city council is, and, and, and we have a new city council, so perhaps a fresh look can be taken at where their priority spending ought to be. And remember that the ambulance service that they presently have and any money they put forth is an investment. It's not an expenditure. It's an investment in the well-being of their citizens and the well-being of the paramedics that serve the citizens. And this is the timely, obviously, because of, uh, of what is happening. As you mentioned, the new council, they're going to be uh, sworn into their oath of office in uh, the first week of December, and we're told that they're going to begin preliminary uh, hearings about the budget process for, for 2019. Uh, and and we, we, you got to get into this conversation right now because this is going to be an important part of this. I think so. And, you know, watching as an outsider, and I do follow local politics. Obviously, I'm a, I'm a Hamiltonian, and I, I have a keen interest in uh, our electorate. I think this particular council has probably the perfect combination of savvy experience, long-term counselors, with what seems to be uh, very innovative, very smart, uh, very progressive uh, new counselors. So I think it's the perfect opportunity for us to uh, rejig the puzzle and put the priorities where they ought to be, and hopefully uh, EMS, Ambulance Service, is at the top of their list. Bill, We'll make attempts as a union executive to reach out to them, and hopefully give them some information that they consider as they contemplate where our scant resource dollars ought to go. Well, I agree with your assessment, and, and I've, I've met the new councillors, of course. We had them all on the program on Monday night when we were broadcasting from City Hall. And, and the, the big plus that I see there, Mario, is they may be new to City Council, uh, but they're certainly not new to the community, and most of them, of course, are very, very active within the community. Uh, and that's a plus for them, too. So they, they they probably have some concept of what's going on here. And I know they're well aware of what's going on with Code Zeros. But uh, once you show them some of the numbers and have this discussion about staffing levels, uh, I'm hoping that they can actually see that, look, at something has to be done here. I'm hoping. And as I said, I, I think we have probably, for the first time in a long time, the perfect combination of new but very smart, very community-minded uh, counselors, along with those that have been there, for a significant period of time, that know all the issues. You know, Tom Jackson, you know, Sam Marula, Chad Collins, even to a certain degree, uh, um, Lloyd Ferguson. Um, so I think we have the perfect combination, which pr- should present the perfect opportunity to once and for all, let's deal with uh, a progressive plan to make sure our ambulance service is fully staffed, given some of the demands that we face today, and we're likely to face tomorrow. The demographics point to an increased call volume. So let's deal with it now. Let's have a plan in place. And I think we just might have the right combination of counsel to deal with it. I should mention Brad Clark as well. He's obviously an old workhorse, and he's always been very articulate and very on point with respect to emergency services. So I'll add him in the mix. Hopefully I haven't missed anybody. But um, I'm looking forward to meeting with the new counselors to put forth what we believe is undeniable facts about where we ought to be as an ambulance service. And there is... It will require some spending, some prioritizing of spending, which is an investment in the random service bill. Well, we know that traditionally, I mean, we can go back historically on this. I know we're just about out of time here, but when we get into the winter months, call volumes do go up. And, uh, uh, you know, I'm not trying to be the the bearer of bad news, but, I mean, these numbers are probably going to fluctuate as a result, so cancel has to get on this quickly. Mario, as always, thanks so much for this. I know we'll talk about this again in the next couple of weeks. My pleasure. Thank you, Bill. Eric Pastoro, president of Opsu Local 26. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Right now, though, the story that uh, led the news yesterday, of course, is uh, south of the border in uh, uh, Washington, New York, and other communities. Uh, packages with uh, crudely devised pipe bombs 
uh, have been delivered to the offices of multiple Democratic leaders, uh, including Bill Clinton, concluding Barack Obama, and the CNN newsroom, among many others. Uh, it's obviously caused a great deal of consternation right now in the, in the United States. Uh, we're very heated political time anyway because of the midterm elections which are coming up and the political rhetoric that's been going on. Uh, when news of the uh, the uh, pipe bombs being delivered uh, reached the White House, uh, President Trump had this to say. Any acts or threats of political violence are an attack on our democracy itself. No nation can succeed that tolerates violence or the threat of violence as a method of political intimidation, coercion, or control. We all know that. Uh, unfortunately, the president walked back on that comment just about half an hour later when he blamed the media for the frenzy that was going on and, and perhaps suggesting that it was media and fake news uh, that was causing people to send these, these pipe bombs. Uh, very troubling indeed. Joining us to talk about this is Jacob Nyheisel, of course, Assistant Professor of Political Science at the University of Buffalo College of Arts and Sciences. Uh, professor, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, this is this is troubling. I mean, th- we we expect some political uh, back and forth on this, and things do get a little bit heated from time to time. But uh, how do you how do you read what's been going on over the last twenty four hours? Uh so I, I can't say that I'm terribly surprised, given how the, the rhetoric has been amped up for you know, at least two years now. And uh, I, I suppose it was only a matter of time that we'd see another incident like this. I'm, I'm trying to you know, connect the dots in situations like this. And, I, and when I heard these stories yesterday, uh, immediately what came to my mind is, is, is the number of times that the president has uh, blamed the media, blamed fake news, uh, essentially called to his, his Make America Great audiences once again. Uh, to to you know to battle these people and and you know I, the, what was it what's just the day before I guess he was talking about you know the guy the body slammed a reporter was that his kind of guy uh, it's it's probably with in that context not surprising that that this sort of thing would occur absolutely not I mean it doesn't uh, take a lot to connect the dots between Trump's frequent targets in terms of you know folks he calls out be it the media establishment or particular Democrats and then connect that to specific acts that he's talked about um, when there are protesters in, in his rallies, you know, get them out, um, I'll pay for your legal fees, that sort of thing. And so it, it doesn't take a great leap in logic to, to connect the two. Uh, but it's it's interesting to see how this happens. We saw this with the Kavanaugh hearings and, and, and some of the things that went on. That, that, that at, at one point, the president seems to say the quote-unquote right thing as he did with this, but within minutes, he just seems to backtrack on this, and obviously the supporters tend to do the same thing. I mean, there was a tweet from Lou Dobbs from Fox News uh, earlier this morning, I don't know if you saw that, Jacob, that essentially said these were fake bombs, fake news, and uh, who would benefit from this? And you understand what this Now, he's since pulled the tweet back, but obviously you you get the gist of what he was trying to say there. Absolutely, and I've heard it uh, locally as well on on some uh, of the the talk radio stations around here. you know, I think that the initial reaction many folks have is to, to spin out, well, who could possibly be doing this? What could their motivations be? And you know, I think I'm a little more reluctant to, to engage in that kind of activity. But, you know, I, I think in, in times of uncertainty, we run to our biases, and, and the natural reaction would be to, you know, say it, it's, it's not our side or it's not somebody who, who um, appreciates our side or our message. It has to be someone else. 
But to, to see the political dialogue and, and, and the, the landscape changing and going to this degree, uh, I'm, I'm trying to think of a time in, in recent history, Jacob, where this has actually even happened before, and, and, and I'm, I'm befuddled right now. This is, this is a, a new era, as far as I can see, anyway. I certainly do think that the last two and a half years or so are, are a new era. Um, I think um, if Trump wants to, to throw blame elsewhere, he should probably look in the mirror first. I, I think that the, the qualitative shift in, in rhetoric uh, really does does originate with his campaign and, and with his arrival in the political scene. Um, you know, I don't want to engage in whataboutism, but then even Democrats, seeing the traction that he Trump has gotten at his rallies, uh, have engaged in you know moving the message from Hillary Clinton's "When they go low, we go high" to Eric Holder's uh, "When they go low, we kick them." Uh, so uh, it, it it certainly does originate with Trump. I don't I don't mean to to walk that back at all. Uh, he's he certainly. Uh, carries the lion's share of the blame here, but both sides seem to have embraced at least some of this kind of rhetoric, and, and again, I think it was only a matter of time before someone out there took it took it way too far. Well, and yeah, I guess the obvious question we have to ask ourselves is how far can this go? I, yeah, I, I hasten to speculate about that. Um, you know, I get this question a lot in, in talks that I give locally on campus and in the community about well, is this the, the worst time we've ever lived through? Is this, you know, the most polarized we've ever been? And I think the answer is, of course, no. We, we don't, you know, remember uh, some of the earlier times, either because we're not quite steeped in the history or we certainly weren't alive during those time periods. But, you know, there, there were certainly other flare-ups, um, the run-up to the American Civil War. Um, certainly the 1960s was not exactly a peaceful era when it, when it came to, to political conflict and, and rhetoric. And so... You know, there there have been flare-ups of this nature. Some have led to, to catastrophes. Others have led to, you know, detente and actual institutional change. And so I think that, you know, it's anyone's guess as to where this is going. Well, I'm not sure detente's on the table, given the, the track record of the Trump administration over the last two years. But it, it, you're right. I mean, there can be, uh, you know, catastrophic consequences as a result of this. And, uh, you're, you know, you go back to the 1960s, as you say, the, the civil rights movement, the, the anti-war movement that was going on, and, and, and the, uh, the, the polarization that was occurring uh, in the nation back in those days. And, uh, but, you know, and then you look at what are the consequences. Well, it led to assassinations of some leaders. And, and you'd hate to think that this is what's going to happen here. But, you know, when pipe bombs are being delivered to the houses of, of some of these leaders, you have to wonder just how far that can go. Absolutely. So I, I was uh, in graduate school at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and uh, I took a statistics class in Sterling Hall, and it still bears the marks of a, of a bomb that was set off by a, a domestic uh, um, left-leaning group. Um, but there was certainly enough to go around on, on the right, arguably you know, within the administration itself at that time. So, yeah, there, there are continual reminders of how bad it could actually get. Jacob, is is the bar been lowered now in in political rhetoric and dialogue? As you mentioned, I I, I saw Eric Holder's comments, too, and I I assumed, I hoped he was was just saying that in jest, but it just seems as if, you know, Trump has set the bar and said, this is where it's going to be. And uh, at one point, you're absolutely right, the Democrats said we're not going to get in the mud with them, but they seem more than willing to do it now. Yeah, again, I I hate to to hold up what you might term an existence proof and say, look, they did it too, and say that the two sides are absolutely equal. I, I want to be clear that I, I think it does originate with Trump, and I think that there has been a, a continual lowering, lowering of the bar um, of political rhetoric. Uh, we just had a debate here between our two gubernatorial candidates in New York that um, could have been, it was anything but cordial, and uh, I think that uh, what we've seen in the, the 2016 campaign is really just having downstream effects uh, at almost every level of race. 
Uh, and obviously with the midterms, I mean, that's that's really the gasoline on the fire right now because I think there's probably a time there a few weeks ago where the Democrats thought this this was over. They were home and cooled out and they were going to win the House and everything was going to be fine. And everything seems to be in doubt now. Uh, I, I think that that's sort of a, well, it's a narrative we have because we have to talk about something and, you know, we have to sound as if it, it's going to be uh, an actual contest. I certainly think the Republicans have closed the enthusiasm gap uh, that the Democrats were really banking on to, to drive them to victory. All the models are still suggesting it's going to be a, a, a Democratic victory in the House. I don't think it's going to be quite as large as they hope it to be. Um, but at the same time, they don't have much to look forward to on the Senate side of things. Well, and that was the concern, I think. Uh, obviously, because of the Kavanaugh hearings, uh, they, that seemed to have, have revived the Republican base and the Trump supporters, and, and there was a concern that that was actually going to be reflected in, in the polls. Has that died down now? I think people have pretty short memories, and, and given that the, the Kavanaugh hearing was ultimately you know, victorious for, for the Republicans, uh, I think that their, their base is somewhat less energized on, on that issue in particular. Um, I just think the electoral math on the Senate side has always been bad for Democrats, and that a few votes on the Kavanaugh hearing, perhaps, Heidi Heitkamp being one of them, really kind of sealed their fate on that side. And so I think the best they can hope for is a, is a tie, really, on the Senate side right now. Um, and, and hope to, to stem the bleeding there from some folks who are, are Democrats in really red states. So what, what, what would be the consequences of that? Let's assume that, uh, that the numbers are, are, are true, and, and after these midterm elections, in just a couple of weeks now, uh, you've got a Democratic majority in the House. How, how does that jibe with what Trump wants to do? Is, is it, is it going to be the reverse of what happened with Obama in a Republican House where virtually nothing got done that, that the president wanted to have done? Well, I don't, I don't think much has been getting done on the legislative side of things anyways. Uh, you know, it may, many of his major legislative initiatives, such as uh, the repeal and replace effort, really were stalled in a, in a um, legislative environment that, that saw some infighting between Republicans. One of the downsides of winning is that you now have something of a big tent and you have ideological divisions within, within your own camp. And so I look for Democrats to uh, take the powers that are available to them on the, on the House side, such as you know, some of their investigatory abilities and, and bringing members of Trump's cabinet in front of them to testify on, on a variety of matters. So I think things are just going to get somewhat more contentious for the president, and he's always going to be playing defense. Um, what he does with that, uh, a likely outcome seems to be that he really embraces, as if he hasn't already, executive unilateralism and uses the, the power of the pen to, to do something. Yeah, uh, and he's already started that, obviously, early in his administration. Uh, I find it uh, odd as well, of course, that, you know, you're absolutely right. I mean, the inaction that, uh, of his administration when it comes to some of the things that he said he was going to do, uh, he tends to blame on the Democrats, and the Democrats, of course, don't even have a majority in either the Senate or in the House right now. So, But are, are people buying that? I, you know, people are, are really good, motivated reasoners. This has been my, my line pretty consistently in that... Um, They'll believe what they want to believe, um, if, if it's at all possible. And I think that the president saying that and uh, certainly gives them hope to say, well, you know, if it weren't for democratic obstructionism, we could have all of these things that he promised and all these things that we want, whereas really they have to start looking at their own house and looking at some of the ideological divisions that are there between Trump-style Republicans and, and more establishment folks. How, what, how, how much of an influence is Trump going to have in this election, uh, Jacob, as, as we get to the polls in just a couple of days now? Uh, obviously, he's done a lot of, of campaigning, a lot of stumping uh, with Ted Cruz and with others uh, that, that seem to be in pretty tight races right now. Uh, with, the, with that 
base right now? Do, does, does Trump still have the magic to be able to pull those votes? I think so, but it's only really going to resonate in places where Republicans aren't probably that worried to begin with. Um, if you're running in a district uh, that's an open seat, one of those 30-plus retirements that, that Republicans experienced in the last couple years, um, if you're running in one of those seats, I'm not sure how much you're embracing Trump. And uh, I think he still plays well among segments of the public. Um, around here locally, New York 27 is um, oddly up for grabs, a race that we didn't think would be up for grabs uh, until the summer when uh, Chris Collins was indicted. Um, that's an area where Trump's message plays well, and we recently in the Buffalo area had Steve Bannon come to town uh, to sort of drum up some support for uh, for that kind of base. And so I think in some places he's certainly still playing well. Others, um, I, I imagine you see some candidates backpedaling. As, as the dust settles after the midterms, Jacob, uh, is, is there a possibility of a, of a, a Democratic hopeful uh, rising from the ashes? I mean, obviously it's not going to be Hillary. We've heard Joe Biden, Eric Holder's name has been thrown around there. Uh, but obviously, if you wanted to make Donald Trump a one-term president, somebody has to come there to, to actually take the lead for the Democratic Party. Absolutely. A lot of names have been thrown around. It, it's not very hard to read the tea leaves with some of these uh, um, high-ranking Democrats. Um, they're miraculously making appearances in Iowa. They're you know, issuing press releases that have nothing to do with their, their job or their official duties. So it's not quite all the, It's not difficult to really define the field right now. I don't know that one has emerged to really level a, a challenge to Trump just yet, um, but certainly something could happen. <laughs> well, it's going to have to happen, though, isn't it? I mean, obviously, if, if uh, Americans are going to become disenchanted with Donald Trump, uh, they've got to look at somebody else as a viable alternative. And, and I don't know that you're going to find somebody that had the charisma that Barack Obama had 10 years ago, but uh, but that seems to be the, the standard that they're looking for now, somebody who's going to you know be, some, gather that sort of support and they can rally around. Absolutely, that'd be the ideal. Uh, that being said, um, I don't know how much this uh, crosses borders, but uh, negative partisanship seems to be something that's taken hold in the last couple of years in the United States, where you're not so much enamored with your party as you are angry at the other one. And so I think with sufficient anger on the left, uh, with Donald Trump, uh, certainly they could pull the lever for absolutely anybody in that position. Um, and that that you know, may present something of an opportunity for them. Well, it's going to be fascinating to see how it emerges over the next little while. Jacob, thank you so much for the time today. Pleasure talking with you. Of course, always. Take care. Jacob Nyheisel from uh, the uh, University of Buffalo College of Arts and Sciences. Uh, interesting times politically and uh, dangerous times on the political scene in the United States. And as we mentioned, uh, the, the FBI and others are investigating, including New York City police, about the pipe bomb situation. And uh, obviously, as we get updates, we'll pass those on to you. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.